Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, we're back with another episode of Gov Actually, and we're here with a, uh, a longtime friend of yours. Yeah, James Rosen is here. James is currently an investigative reporter for the Sinclair Broadcast Group. Prior to that, he spent many years as a White House correspondent and a State Department correspondent for Fox News. And a topic that we have not yet talked about on Gov Actually is how the media covers covers government. So. James, you know, it's interesting, and um, I've known James for a long time, I think, before any of us got into media or government, uh, and then we would run into each other a lot, because I was in the old executive office building, and, and I'd run into James as he was on the White House beat, and so we, we've stayed in touch all those years. So, James, welcome uh, welcome to Gov Actually. I am actually a friend of yours, and I guess, <laughs> you given are. the way this was introduced, this distinguishes me from, from Dan. <laughs> Depends on the day, but uh, actually, I'm curious, Danny. You're going to have to. We were talking about the um, uh, the kind of uh, Talmudic aspects of our our approach to this um, this uh, podcast here, and and I'm worried that James might actually be running right up on the line here because we've talked about not focusing on politics or poli- or, or personalities. Okay. And and I'm just I'm afraid that. James is a little too famous. He well, yeah, he is, he is famous. Well, when I you know when I was uh, telling Dan about you, James, I said no pressure here, James. But I said, and I think I have this right. Didn't you win a stand-up contest, which resulted in you being named the funniest journalist in Washington D.C.? No, that diminishes my accomplishment, Danny. <laughs> uh, it was actually entitled D.C.'s funniest celebrity. And so I really don't care about funniest, but I cling tenaciously to celebrity. And I've shown it to my son. See, your dad's a celebrity, 2003. Oh, wait, so you went up against just anybody. No, it was very stiff competition, <laughs> uh, including Ariana Huffington, Tom Daschle, and, and other famous names of the early aughts. The, Any, the, anyone funny? <laughs> um, besides me? Um, uh, and the judges that night included Nora O'Donnell and Tucker Carlson when both were with MSNBC. Oh, This is wow. the Paleolithic era we're referring Tucker to. Tucker Carlson was once on MSNBC. Tucker Carlson That has, is the fact of the day. Has been on all three of the cable networks. Okay. Yes. Now, so what, before we get into, into the government, like, what about your routine do you think won the day? Did you do Godfather impressions? Because I've heard you do Godfather impressions, yeah, do and Godfather. they're really good. That's kind of you. I did impressions. I did you know, an impression that wouldn't resonate today, but, but was huge that night on, of, of Helen Thomas, okay. the famous reporter yep. at the White House, now deceased. Um, you know, and I'd have to go back to uh, the mists of time and my memory to tell you more about what I did that night. Oh, Rumsfeld. I did my Rumsfeld. There are oh. things we know we know, there are things we don't know that we don't know, and there are things that have been in my pants since 1953. All right, now here's a, here's <laughs> a thing. Now, I've done that for Rumsfeld, by the way. I did that exact bit for Rumsfeld, and he loved it. He did? Yes, in the green room at Fox News, and he had two young interns traveling with him, and he said, get over, you have to hear this, get, do it again, do it again for what you did for me, so. 
I, you, I, you could be the only person who actually does a rum spell. <laughs> Although I could see like a Saturday Night Live skit, but that sounds like they just throw it together last second. There was second. a time, Danny, when Rumsfeld impersonations were, were more au courant than they are right now. I, I think <laughs> I we can stipulate too. this. Okay. You get paid for one of those. All right. So here, here, I'll start the questions with, with, with a particular moment in time. Um, so, so I have this memory, James, where uh, you won't remember it, but uh, I think it was the GAO, Government Accountability Office, released a report, and the report documented um, federal employee misuse of purchase cards or government charge cards, oh, yes. mm -hmm. where, they, where, they, where they go through and they audit the purchases and they find things like, well, this person used their purchase card at a sports authority or this one to buy laundry, just things that are, have no government purpose. And it's a very incendiary report. This was during the Obama administration. Maybe it was during the Bush administration, actually. Let me go back. I think it was during the Bush administration. And I was coordinating our response and actually did a, a press conference. Um, to answer questions about about what the administration's position was on this report and what we were going to do to crack down on this, and and as the you know an OMB lead, if I did a press conference, who would be on the press call would be GovExec, it would be you know FedScoop, Fed News Radio, Government Computer Week, and that's it. But on this one, everybody was on, including you from at that time you were on Fox News, and so the question that I have is. You know, from our vantage point, there's a lot of really challenging things that go on on the day-to-day -day government that aren't as kind of sexy and 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 human interesty as uh, as as government employees misusing charge cards. Like, what what's going on behind the scenes that makes a a a, a, a Fox News or a CNN think this is a a story about government employees that we're going to cover versus ones that we're not? That's interesting. I, I can't presume to speak for those organizations uh, as a representative of them. Um, but as your goodwill ambassador from the world of, of news media and cable news and, and now Sinclair Broadcast Group, uh, I would say, um, you know, I wouldn't, I, like as Potter Stewart, the, the late Supreme Court Justice, is said to have said, uh, when asked to define pornography, he said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And so I, don't, I wouldn't presume here to, de to define for our audience newsworthiness, but we know it when we see it. Uh, some theories of this would say, when it bleeds, it leads, right? And, and that is a crass kind of uh, reductio ad absurdum way of, of defining what is newsworthy. If there's a lot of casualties, uh, obviously it's something people are going to cover. But uh, in, in the case of uh, government news, news being presented to us in, let's say, in the form of a press release from the, from the government, um, it's got to have to meet the test of, will the taxpayer care? Mm. Okay, and of course it's always going to meet that test since news organizations are corporations yeah. uh, and not public utilities or, uh, or government offices themselves. It's going to have to meet some kind of free market profitability test. Will this, will this story garner us ratings or advertisement space, et cetera, uh, depending on which kind of medium we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that gets into a really interesting kind of question or tension because, you know, you, I think the media often gets criticized for, you know, kind of following the mighty dollar versus, you know, kind of serving the public good because I think there is this notion that's fair that 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 the media and let's keep it to government that the media's coverage of the government 
has this higher purpose of transparency and holding to account and um, you know hold, holding government officials accountable and getting to the truth um, and you know does that always run exactly consistent with profit maximization probably not and so how do media groups tackle that is that is the debate as as directed as I just threw up that juxtaposition or is it more subtle than that I think there are other considerations altogether. Um, you might see a news organization shaping its coverage simply to meet the bottom line. and We might call that clickbait, right? Uh, cat videos or what have you, right? <laughs> uh, you might see a news organization uh, shaping its coverage to uh, attain the bet what Bob Woodward likes to call, and I'm not often in the habit of quoting Bob Woodward. Do you have an impression? <laughs> I, I do have a Woodward impression, <laughs> okay. and, and Ben Bradley loved it. Okay, there you go. Um, uh, you know, there are some news organizations that perhaps that will shape their coverage to achieve what Bob Woodward likes to call the best obtainable version of the truth. Uh, I regret to say, uh, and I think that this, this era might be one of them, where you will be able to observe news organizations, um, some of them anyway, pursuing a third course, which is uh, tailoring and shaping the coverage to fit an ideological agenda, whether it meets the test of uh, truth attainment or profitability. Yeah. Um, and it, it might be a temptation that some news organizations simply can't uh, resist. Can you, can you dive into the mechanics a little bit? I mean, how, how does that actually happen? Let's take Danny's story about the credit card. How, how did that even become something that got on your radar? Normally, it would exist on the on the Fed scoop radar. How does it suddenly become a, a story that um, one of the major networks covers? In in pure mechanical terms, uh, probably the uh, uh, press, the public information officer, the PIO, as government people like to call them, or the media relations person, or the comms folks, right, as government people would call them, the communications yeah. people, uh, who work for a particular government unit that is releasing a particular report like that would, uh, as a very first step and an important one, place um, a notice of the press conference where the report will be unveiled, even if that's just, let's say, a conference call or something. They would place the notice of that on something called the Associated Press Daybook. Mm -hmm. And the Daybook sort of gives you a rundown uh, early in the morning of what's going to happen in Washington and elsewhere around the country that we know about in advance on a given day, and that is consulted by just about every assignment manager in the news industry at local and, and national levels. And so my guess is that that credit card report uh, from OMB, word of it, of, of the unveiling of that report, was placed on the uh, AP Daybook, and editors saw it and said, that's interesting, people misusing taxpayer-funded credit cards for personal use. Um, it shows the government in a terrible light. Yes, let's do something on that. <laughs> but it, it, it seems like it actually, um, the specifics were GAO released a report and it seemed like then what OMB decided to do was, quote-unquote, get ahead of it. Get by to, yeah, yeah, get to the microphone first, mm -hmm. shape the, you know, there, there's, a, there's a cadence to when an inspector general report or a GAO report goes out where, where there's an immediate understanding that, that a mistake has been made and the government has messed up, where you want to, as the administration, express anger 
frustration that this has happened, uh, talk about how you're gonna hold people accountable, but also move the narrative towards the future and say, so here's what we, we have going forward. And so there, I think we, we, did, we did this, this, hey, you know, we're gonna have an OMB official talking about this report at three o'clock. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and again, I was surprised. And when you, when you're, I was not nervous. I, at that point in time, I had gotten enough experience that uh, talking to the press that I was fine. It's what, when you said, uh, uh, this is uh, James Rosen at Fox News, I got really nervous yeah. for two reasons. I one, had that effect on people. Yes, one, because I know you and I actually cared what you thought. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I was like, man, I can't screw this up in front of James. But second, I realized that this was a, a bigger story with a bigger audience than I had, um, than I was used to. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just interesting to, to because, I, you know, I, I used to say that, I used to tell this story that in the same week, but I probably exaggerated uh, how close in time it was, the, um, there was a front page uh, story about the Defense Department. This is like going back to 2005. Uh, uh, for getting in trouble for spending $50,000 on a tent that was erected for a retirement party. In that same week, like the transportation department lost its clean audit opinion, which basically meant that you know, they weren't able to track billions of dollars in taxpayer funds um, um, effectively, and, and nobody covered the loss of the clean audit opinion, but the, the $50,000 tent was, was big news. That might be because there is in this country a long history and a long memory of Pentagon overspending uh, with respect to, I think, in the early 1980s. The hammer, yeah, yeah, the hammer, the toilet seat, and so forth. So this fit an existing model in people's minds. Allow me just to add to what you've said that um, in, in the event that you might not get around to this, uh, that from the perspective of government officials, um, there, it isn't simply um, instances or evidence of government m malfunction that the comms folks, the, the media relations people are seeking to publicize or, or shape coverage of. The government does incredible things every day. Uh, just about every facet of the government does incredible things every day. Um, and they also want to try and secure coverage of those things when you've got something positive to yes, sell. Yes. And in, in those instances, we might even say that it might be a tougher sell for, for, for uh, those comms folks to secure media coverage. Um, and that's a peculiar dynamic. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's, it speaks to a larger thing that I get asked a lot when people find out I'm a reporter. Uh, they say, a lot of people are inclined to say, why is it that the media just cover bad news? Why do we see so much bad news and not enough good news on, on television news, in the newspaper, online, et cetera? And some people are inclined to cite the profit motive, um, in essence arguing that uh, the media thrive on conflict. Conflict is always the, the, the main driver of drama and therefore that's what drives ratings and, and profit and so forth. I actually descend to a level of analysis on this that I think is more primal and fundamental um, and actually more optimistic about the human beast. Uh, to wit, um, if we did not make a big deal out of bad news. Um, it would say something fundamentally terrible about our nature. Uh, the fact that we still regard murder as so abhorrent and so awful that we feel compelled to lead with it shows that we're not totally inured to murder uh, in our society, and we see an awful lot of it. Right. Um, and so uh, it, the, the, the focus on bad news, in essence, I think, I honestly believe, reflects 
um, a state of mind on the part of news executives and also news consumers that things should be going right. Um, or as Anne Frank said, I basically believe hum human beings are basically good, okay? Um, and so if we actually believe that, then we will find it more remarkable when things go wrong or, or things are done that are abhorrent and therefore to be remarked upon in the news. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Well, and that's the uh, the whole notion of the the reference to the news media as the fourth estate. This, you know, this kind of fourth branch that uh, holds people accountable and sheds light on on subjects so that uh, things can be known and then fixed. And it's an accountability function. So to that point, anytime I have a chance to address high school students. Uh, and journalism students in college, people who are forming their ideas about what they're going to do for a living, and I all ask them to raise their hand and say, who here is thinking about pursuing a career in journalism? And of course that number rises exponentially when you're talking to journalism students somewhere. Right. But, um, but then I say, okay, go around the room, tell me why you want to be a reporter. And I always receive the, roughly the same range of responses, something like, I want to help people, I want to help children. I want to be a voice for the voiceless. I want to speak truth to power, and so on. And I listen politely, and every time, and very seldom am I uh, derailed from my spiel um, by some pain in the neck smart person. Um, but I, I always invariably wind up saying those are all noble aspirations. Not a one of them has anything to do with why, in my view, good reporters become reporters. If you want to help people, become a social worker. You want to help children? Become a child, a children's advocate. You want to be a voice for the voiceless? Run for Congress. You want to speak truth to power? Become a columnist. The only good reason why a good reporter becomes a reporter in my ascetic view of these things is uh, to um, tend to two simple words, the record. There's only two types of people who believe in the existence of something called the record of our times and that it matters and that it... My wife is not a reporter or a lawyer. She's a normal person. And she <laughs> does not invest in this imaginary construct of the record, that it has to be uh, updated, it has to be fixed, it has to be corrected, it has to be established just so. The reporter cares about that because the good reporter anyway, the honest reporter, the intellectually honest reporter, cares about the record because they want to lay down literally a, rec a, re a record of what happened in our times that a Martian 2,000 years from now or someone 100 years from now can look back and say, what happened during that time? The, the lawyer has a different interest in the record. They are trying to win an adversarial proceeding okay, against other parties. The reporter, in theory anyway, the honest reporter, is involved in a truth inquest. But that's the only reason to become a reporter, if, you're, if you really care, if you really, is because you care about adducing new facts to the record of our times. And whatever uses that good record that you've compiled is put to, whether by the government or by, uh, by other private sector parties or what have you, really can't be your concern as a reporter. Yeah. Your concern has to be get, adducing new facts to the record of our times. Now, you have to do it in an, in an entertaining way. Otherwise, no one will come back for day two. Yeah. But um, that but, is the real reason to become a reporter. It's not really to hold people accountable or, or to, to be the voice for the people. It is to establish an honest record of what happened. One last point on this, Please. if I may. I had the honor of interviewing William F. Buckley, Jr. 
um, uh, on the occasion of his 75th birthday. Uh, we had a three-camera shoot. We did an hour. Only about 16 minutes of it ever aired. This was October of 2000. Uh, the, the Clinton presidency was winding down at that point. Um, and uh, I said to him, Mr. Buckley, what ought an honest historian to say about the Clinton presidency? And he paused for a moment, and with that brilliant genius for sophistry that he had, Buckley said, well, it seems to me that uh, uh, an honest historian would first tell what happened. <laughs> yeah. But let me, I think we're going to take a break, but I have so many directions I want to take the conversation. One Maybe of, you could give Dan a little bump no, here and there, right? I, that, you haven't listened to the show if you, <laughs> yeah, 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 this is, you know. Um, the, what I want to do when we get back from the break is talk about the tension between reporter and columnist, because I think there 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 is one, and there's confusion out there about maybe reporter and commentator. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But then I also want to bridge that to the information age that we live in today, and the social media age, and how that's changing media, and um, and start to to think about how that's that's impacting perceptions of government and how the government is You know what? That hurts my head. I don't, I'm not even sure I'm going to be back after the break. <laughs> <laughs> Tough question, right? Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, we're back from the break, and Danny's been limbering up with all his uh, with all his uh, deep questions. My, my deep thoughts. Your yeah. Deep thoughts for yeah. Well, well, quick setup. Um, when I was at the IRS, and I was the acting commissioner, and it was a very high-profile moment with a lot of media coverage. There were times where I was I was down in the dumps a little bit about about the coverage, and a, a friend of mine called me who's in public relations, um, and that day. Daryl Issa had said something very incendiary about me, and that was having, you know, I was getting down about that. And he said, he said, I, I, a lesson in, in, in media is, he said, we're going to play a little game, go in front of your computer, let's get Google up there. He said, I want you to name three public figures for me that you have deep respect for today. So I came up with three, and we Googled them. And the experiment was, what kind of coverage did these three people get? And, and his hypothesis, which proved out, is it's mixed. There are, there are stories that have angles that are very positive in coverage and stories that have angles that are negative. So he said, so even, even people that, you, you know, so, so be okay, Danny, because as long as the coverage is fairly mixed, that's, that's the standard. You know, no one gets perfect coverage. And some people get awful coverage straight on through, like, I don't know, Anthony Weiner or someone like that, right? So you want to totally avoid the full negative coverage. But the point is, is that some of those articles, I couldn't, thinking back, tell whether they just straight up news articles or commentary, because even news articles have an angle to them. And so that's what I wanted to come back to, your point about the record made total sense to me. But a lot of those, those stories have some type of hook associated with them. So while you're putting the facts in the record, you're also creating a hook and a story and a narrative. And that's, that's what I wanted you to comment on. Hmm. Well, uh, first, I'm, I'm tempted to begin with a couple of quotes. Uh, again, from William F. Buckley, he was asked late in life by the New York Times Magazine if he had ever cheated on his taxes, and he said, I don't think it's possible not to cheat on your taxes. <laughs> so I, I say that to you in, in light of your former IRS role. Uh, in, in terms of receiving uh, 
adverse media coverage and allowing that to get one down in the dumps. Um, anyone who's spent any time in the public eye has probably felt that. Yeah. Uh, there was a quote attributed uh, to a man named Herman Kahn, now deceased. He was a, a rotund, bespectacled nuclear theorist on whom the Dr. Strangelove movie is thought to have been based, and he later founded the Hudson Institute think tank, which is still very prominent here in Washington today. And Kahn, Herman Kahn is said to have said, there are two types of people in the world, those who care what the New York Times says about them and those who do not. Um, <laughs> in, to, remind me of what your specific question was well, um, I guess about the, the angles on news yeah, stories, I right? Guess, Straight I guess, news reporting. I'm going reporting. back to your point about it, that, 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 that a reporter's job is to, is to, is to create the record. Mm -hmm. But I'm suggesting, and I don't know if this is something that's evolved over time in journalism, and, but, and bringing it back to the government, that my experience from watching how the media covered government is that there is a narrative or an angle. It's not, ju it's not just, here's what happened, and here's kind of a resuscitation of the facts. It's, you know, it's, you know uh, Obama's you know, failing to get, you know, the, the number of, of, of support that he needs to, to get Republicans to vote for the Affordable Care Act, but within that is kind of like something about his inabil inability to work across the aisle and his a failure that he had in terms of meeting a campaign promise. So the story is telling the story like, yes, it's true, he didn't get any Republican votes on the Affordable Care Act, but the hook and the headline and the narrative is that this is a part of a larger personal failure of his well, to create relationships. You're distinguishing between coverage that would simply report that no Republicans voted for the legislation and coverage that says the president failed to secure Republican votes, that mm -hmm. personalizes it and yes. dramatizes it. Yes. Um, uh, Britt Hume, who was my boss for many years at Fox News, um, used to like to say that the quintessential Washington story is a confirmation hearing in jeopardy, okay. Okay. a nomination in jeopardy, because uh, what you'll what it boils down to in his formulation was man on a tightrope. Um, are they going to make it or not? Um, and it, it really does come down to a single individual personifying the entire uh, process and and dynamic of success or failure. Um, I, let me say this: you you raise the question of whether this this tendency in journalism is a recent one. Yeah. There is a, um, there is a perception out there that the news media were fairer and more objective in some unspecified time in the past. Uh, generally, if, if, if pressed to identify it, uh, people point to the era of Walter Cronkite and when he was the most trusted man in America and so forth. I'm ashamed to tell you I spent 17 years writing a book about Watergate. Yes. And uh, among the many archival sources that I was able to access that had never been mined before for that book was the transcripts of the set of transcripts for every single CBS News program that aired between 1972 and 75. Not just the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite that aired Monday through Friday at 6 and 6.30, but the CBS Saturday News with Dan Rather the CBS Sunday News with Bob Schieffer, you know, midday news break with Douglas Edwards. Edwards was the first anchor of the CBS Evening News in the 50s, and this was a minute-long news break cut-in that he would anchor at noon on weekdays. It's really the forerunner to cable news because if Attorney General John Mitchell said such and such during the Watergate hearings this morning, they would run a clip, the closest yeah. thing to contemporaneous turnaround that we have today. I read all of these transcripts, specials at 11, that I aired at 11 and so on, documentaries, 
And the idea that Nixon and his men received fair or objective coverage at that time is untrue. Um, it was pretty hard slanted. Uh, and the same probably was true for Ronald Reagan, which is why eventually you got Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch starting the Fox News Channel because they felt that the media were biased. They were, were very open in saying this and wanted to provide a lucrative antidote, and they did. So the idea that this is a new tendency in American journalism to sort of uh, take a, an adverse spin onto uh, otherwise a, an observable set of facts, the idea that it's new I think is faulty. The last thing I'll tell you is uh, about the story I covered today and which I filed just before coming over here. This was about the testimony on Capitol Hill today before a Senate subcommittee of Christopher Wray, the FBI director. Uh, and Senator Gene Shaheen, Democrat of New Hampshire, was asking the FBI director about the earlier testimony uh, earlier this month of Attorney General William Barr who had told lawmakers, um, paraphrasing but fairly closely, I think spying did occur on the Trump campaign and I think spying on a presidential campaign is a big deal. Ms. Shaheen, in the way she phrased the question, said uh, some disparaging things about Mr. Barr, saying I thought his use of the word spying was loaded, uh, it concerned me, um, and then she put, that was the predicate to her question, and then she asked FBI Director Ray the following. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but fairly faithfully. Um, when the FBI investigates organized crime, terrorists, and other transgressors, um, is, should that be considered spying? And FBI Director Ray replied, well, it's not a term I would use. Instantly, this was reported by CNN, by Politico, and other mainstream media outlets that Christopher Wray, the FBI director, was, quote unquote, and they all use similar language, distancing himself from the comments of Attorney General Barr, okay, in not, I would not use that term, spying. But if you actually paid careful attention to the question Mr. Wray was answering, and we know who pays very careful attention to those questions is Mr. Wray himself, who's a very cautious speaker and an excellent uh, witness on Capitol Hill. You don't get to be FBI director without this kind right. of lawyerly cast of mind. Um, he wasn't specifically asked about William Barr's testimony or his comments about spying on the Trump campaign. Ms. Shaheen invade against that and then posed a generic question to the FBI director about uh, whether it constitutes spying when terrorists and other uh, organized crime type elements are, are surveilled. But you're, you're talking to two people who have actually sat in front of you know, congressional committees and had to answer questions, maybe not quite as loaded as those. But I would say that Mr. Ray knew what the, what the drill was. There's no reason why. He may have known what the impetus of the question was. Right. But he also knew that in answering the way he did, he was answering the question posed to him and that the transcript would later reflect as much. Um, and that gives him some deniability for mm -hmm. the idea that he was criticizing William Barr or different, uh, differing with his assessment, et cetera. And the bottom line is, you know, we as reporters on my side of the aisle, we have got to be basing our coverage on what the record actually shows. And what did he say that he wouldn't use the word spying for? The specific question he was asked. So we can't, we can't, we shouldn't be in the business of making those kind of inferences. So that's but, but CNN did and Politico did and it, that's the way, that's the headline that's going to go out over radio, you know, uh, news radio and the Associated Press. 
Ray distances himself from Barr comments about spying on the Trump campaign, but he wasn't actually asked about that at all. So that's interesting. Is this a strict constructionist view then of what reporting is? Is this a, you know, I, I realize now if we draw together the pre-break discussion about what a reporter's role is to create the record, to, uh, to faithfully uh, describe the record for, you know, kind of the tactician, the data collector for future historians. Um, is this then a strict constructionist kind of argument that's saying, oh, now in this instance of this, um, of this uh, hearing, uh, the reporter should look purely at the record not at the context, and that does that cross over into Danny's concern of What the, is a congressional the, oh, okay. hearing? A congressional hearing is every, uh, every bit of it is, is devoted to the business of establishing a record. There's mm. a transcriber, there's five minute rounds for questions and answers and so forth. That is precisely the point, is to create a transcript for future legislative action. Yeah. And the phrase, let me correct the record, is when you... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I would simply say uh, that um, while I have no philosophical objections to uh, the, the terminology of strict constructionism, um, I would not want to see any reporter um, employing that kind of methodology to the detriment of telling people what happened, right? Um, if um, I'm trying, I'm laboring to think of an analogy, but um, if, um, if, if two people are standing near the edge of a cliff, and one of them loudly sneezes in the other's ear, um, and, the, and the second person goes tumbling off the cliff, would we simply report two separate stories, someone sneezed and someone fell off a cliff? No. Um, context matters. But uh, I'm telling you that in this hearing, Christopher Ray is a savvy character, and he knows how to answer simply the question that was put to him. And that's what I think he was doing. I don't think he was attempting to, uh, why on earth would he, as a matter of fact, as a, as a general methodology, um, seek to answer questions that are beyond the narrow scope of what he was actually asked. That's that's something no lawman would do, and that's not something no savvy congressional witness would ever do. So, so, so as we as we get ready to wrap, let me let me go back to a question I raised during the break and thread. I think this is a great example because I, I want to thread a couple of things together. So, it totally resonates with me that um, that there's this you know question or concern with running with that angle of the story against the, the facts of what happened in, in the, in the Q&A. But my question is, is, like, is because of the way in which the news media works today and, and Twitter and social media and, and the soundbite and how much we are overwhelmed? Because your, your 1960s or 70s story is fascinating because it's like, at noon, someone got on for 10 minutes and made a point, and then the, the next time you heard anything newsworthy in real time was at 6.30 at night, so Correct. six and a half hours. Yet, you know, during this podcast I, taping, I think my phone is lit up four or five times with a New York Times breaking news, a CNN breaking news, something's going on. Is our conversation so lacking in interest for you that you're no, glancing at your flashing. phone? Okay. It just keeps All flashing. Right. No, no, no. I wasn't reading. It's a form of selfishness. And so, <laughs> so I want to I go back to... to, to to the point you made earlier that, you know, potentially, yes, and you've studied it and I haven't, the, the angle and the criticism and the, and, and the, way, and, and the negative coverage um, that a president receives today um, may not be unprecedented versus the negative coverage that previous presidents have. That I didn't say. Okay. I just alluded to um, precedent, whether, it, whether the scale or the scope or the okay. vituperation is the same, I think, is okay, very fair much enough. open to question. Fair enough. But... 
But is there a phenomena today with respect to how much volume of, of talking points and sound bites and, and information is pushed across through our, through our smartphones and our TVs that, that, that has changed the way journalists phrase or lead stories in order to, to garner attention and raise the, the incendiariness of a given moment? Or do you think, um, do you think that's an, an overstatement by me? No, I think probably um, it's safe to say that news media organizations, like all kinds of media organizations, are adapting to the radically uh, different environment in which they find themselves, uh, as shaped principally by social media. Uh, I also happen to believe that social media um, are, represent one of the most destructive inventions in the history of our country and, um, and, and serve as a kind of accelerant on the worst impulses. Um, but I, um, um, I think the same old impulses are still present under social media. The thing about social media is that, it gives, is that they give people no time to think, okay? And so judgments have to be made very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think it accelerates some bad tendencies that were already there. Yeah. Isn't there, though, a historic analog in the, in the broadsheets of the 18th century? There's the great, the great uh, biography of John Adams where um, uh, Thomas Jefferson actually had a staffer working for him writing broadsheets uh, that were distributed in Philadelphia, kind of trashing John Adams. I mean, this, this, this is actually probably more of our history had something like social media and kind of uh, citizen journalists uh, expressing their their opinions um, uh, than it was, you know, a three-stable network environment. The perturbance that politicians, that professional politicians feel about um, the administrations of the news media are not new. They date back all the way to the colonial period, as you suggest. Here's uh, the key difference. Once that broadsheet was published, that was the end of that, right? Even as late as the, uh, the 1950s, the Mad Men era, if you wanted to move someplace else and reinvent yourself, you still had a fighting shot of doing so, right? That newspaper was used to wrap fish, and that was the end of that, unless somebody actually traveled to a library and looked it up on microfilm somewhere. The thing about the internet is it stays there forever, and it gets recycled and recycled, and uh, it's very destructive. In his interview with David Frost in 1977, three years after he left office, ex-President Nixon talked about the concentrated power of the three television networks at that time. And he said it's power that they oughtn't to have and which the founders would be very concerned about. Imagine how the founders would be concerned about the power of social media today. Yeah. Mm. All right, last question with a bit of a lead-in, which is, uh, so known James for a long time, knew him before he, he was a success, successful journalist, and had been very proud of him for all of his accomplishments. You're very across. kind, Danny, and likewise. The proudest I was of you was when you filed a story about a year ago, two years ago, profiling the Service for America Awards that is put on by the Partnership for Public Service. You interviewed the head of the partnership, Max Steyer, mm -hmm. and it was, a, it was a moment to reflect on some good news, on some accomplishments of federal employees. So I wanted to thank you for filing that story and ask you, are there things the government can be doing 
to more effectively promote the positive impact that governments can have on people in their lives? No. Uh, <laughs> um, Probably, always, right? Always we can all, whatever our obj given objective is, be doing something uh, to make ourselves more effective at it. Uh, the, 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 again, we come back to the person whose job it is to try and promote those, those items of good news or positive action by the government, the, the comms people, right? Um, they are, in effect, selling that story to editors and to media people. Um, and Max is very good at it, by the way. Um, um, and that just means that in a, in, a, in a crowded information environment, such as we now um, endure, um, that comms person just has to be a little more creative about it. Um, so what's going to land in the inbox of the, the editor or the uh, producer or the reporter who's going to be making that decision about coverage, that would sway them toward coverage. And, and those questions have to be entertained uh, thoughtfully by those comms people. Um, but they, but it is, it's not an insurmountable ob uh, um, obstacle, it seems to me. Um, uh, there, is a, there is a hunger for good news, I think, out there in the country. Um, I've, I've had a, a kind of facetious idea for years that someday I'm going to produce an inverted newscast, where uh, at the top of the newscast, uh, in breathless tones and with a live shot waiting, you, you, you would say something like, good evening, our first story tonight, a tree planting campaign in the Bronx is underway. And you would report it with great dire uh, tone and then progressively work your way toward the end of the newscast to the light and airy reading of the most grisly news. And finally tonight, three people were shot in a crack house murder. <laughs> you know, that would be the inverted newscast. But the bottom line is where it fits in a newscast is immaterial. There is a hunger for some good news. People want to be reassured um, that, uh, that they can invest confidence in government. And so I would say those comms folks who have to sell those stories to news professionals are, are not at a total disadvantage in doing so. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank was, you. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.